Hello and welcome to the EUISS podcast, a conversation on foreign policy what-if scenarios, events that are not as unlikely as they perhaps seem and definitely worth thinking about. My name is Florence Gaub, I am the EUISS Deputy Director and the host of the show, and with me today is Nathalie van Remdonk, Associate Analyst. Hello. And Roderick Parks, Senior Analyst at EUISS. Hello. Now let's take a look at the news item that has just been handed in straight from the future, the year 2022. Eight people were killed yesterday in clashes between demonstrators across the United States, bringing the death toll to 22 after eight weeks of violence. Clashes have spread to more than 12 cities, including New York, Houston and Chicago. Desertion rates in the Army National Guard remain high, and the White House has declared that the state of emergency will remain in place. The conflict has drawn in left and right political factions in urban and rural areas, and some commentators have started to liken recent events to a second American civil war. While it is unclear why the political divide has turned violent so quickly, many suspect Russia and the influence of the internet. House Speaker McDougall stated that none of this could have happened in the 90s. We're still in the time machine, both of you. We're still in 2022. Natalie, can you give me an assessment of what the implications of this situation are? Well, I think uh, the people from 2020 would have never expected this to occur. Hmm. Uh, a civil war is something that seemed so unlikely. The fact that it's actually happening now, I think, has taken a lot of people by surprise. There's been a lot of memes made about uh, World War III at the beginning of 2020. But I think people really didn't think that an actual civil war would break out in one of the most prosperous countries in the, the Western world. So uh, implications are definitely uh, topsy-turvy of... Uh, the status that we've always known uh, and the fact that civil war can break out again in the Western world. Roderick, what's your take on the situation? Well, again, from a, from a 2020 perspective, two things. The first is that if we're, if we're looking to the future of international order, we're thinking a lot in terms of tensions between the US and, and China, big state tensions. Um, we're not looking very much at, at problems of internal cohesion in the US and China, but that's probably something that does need to be in our, in our radar. Um, and something that this, this scenario highlights. The second thing is that, that a lot of the transatlantic tensions are about how we deal with terrorism, civil disobedience, non-state actors. The US, because it hasn't in living memory, had a problem with homegrown terrorism, tends to deploy the army um, abroad. We take much more of a civilian approach. So if the US does experience these kinds of problems at home, then it becomes more normal from our perspective and the way that it thinks about terrorism. So I think from a 2020 perspective, these, these two elements are, are important. So you would say that internal disobedience would make it more European, more civilianized in that sense? Yeah, I think it would be less ready to, to deploy the army to deal with, with a terrorist threat, so long as terrorism is, is an external threat, so long as Al-Qaeda or, or ISIS and it's, and it's happening off your territory, then you reach for the military as soon as it becomes a domestic problem and homegrown, then yeah, then you take a, a more civilian approach. That's assuming that they can actually, that they're not paralyzed to, to a point where they can't do anything because of this internal conflict. But we come back to that. Uh, Natalie, you wanted to jump in here. Yeah, um, I fully agree with uh, Roderick's assessment of um, the fact that there's been such a focus on external threats and uh, external terrorism, uh, non-state actors that aren't necessarily homegrown. And we've seen this also in a lot of the uh, shooting incidents in the past few years in the US that have categorically not been classified as terrorism, even if they were hate crimes against a specific group. And this is starting to become more categorized as hate crimes. The shooting incident in El Paso, for example, 
couple was finally categorized as, as a terrorist incident targeted against a specific uh, group of an ethnicity. But this fear of facing the fact that there is an actual problem of uh, insurgents, homegrown insurgents, is something that will be the demise of the US, the fact that they're not dealing with an, an internal struggle that is already happening uh, under their noses. Um, it's a bit of the frog boiling in its own water, not realizing uh, that it's the water's starting to heat slowly until it's actually boiling. I think that's why this scenario in 2022 will have seemed like it, it, they couldn't see it coming. But there's already a lot of signs right now. We'll come back to the signs in a second, but I want to ask both of you because... The, the question I raised just earlier about would this scenario imply that the U.S. stops being an international security actor because it's so busy dealing with its internal security? I think it would actually even become more of an international security actor to divert away from internal problems because there's also this whole idea of uh, an external enemy will unite a nation. See what's happening right now with Iran as a, a final grasping of straws of Trump to unite the country against an external enemy. Uh, and this is what has happened, has worked for the US in, in the past uh, few decades, finding an external enemy uh, after the Cold War, after the wall fell, and the Russians weren't the big external enemy anymore. There was Al-Qaeda. And now that this threat has sort of like diminished and ISIS has been uh, uh, defeated a bit, um, it's looking for a new enemy. So I do think um, the US will keep focusing external and this will be part of its demise as well, that it's not seeing the internal threat. Yeah, if, we, if, if you look at the historical precedent in, in Europe, if we come back to this question of why did we develop a civilian approach to, to domestic security, then quite often it was because we were simultaneously waging a war abroad and trying to subdue domestic threats to, to power. So that was the case in France um, when it established itself as... France that they were waging a war abroad, but the crown was also, you know, trying to subdue barons in in the domestic setting, which were challenging the authority of, of the crown. So it's it's perfectly possible to to wage war abroad and, and and subdue domestic forces at home, and that often then does lead to a to a more civilian approach at home, and 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 the military then pushed abroad. Interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. So let's look at the water that the frog sitting in. Uh, what are the elements that make this scenario likely? Natalie, you hinted at there were signs already that led you to come up with a scenario. What are these signs? These radicalizing shooter incidents uh, that we see are often seen as lone wolf incidents, but they're part of a broader sentiment that is very xenophobia based. And we're seeing this also just the election of Trump building that wall an identity politics going on that is very polarizing. And there, there's actually numbers of um, the Pew Institutes that show how Americans don't trust each other anymore. The decline in trust of the other, it's declined 20% in the past 30 years. So there's that, the fact that there's a huge us versus them sentiment starting. Um, we're seeing these in, in the tiny little flare-ups of, of radicalizing um, actors who take power and who, who take charge. We're seeing this in, in militias as well. Um, and there's there's more and more signs of, of um, militias coming up. Charlottesville was a watershed moment in that regard when suddenly there was a Nazi protest in a city uniting the right that climbed out of a dark corner of the internet, but also people who have been waging this gathering of people since the 80s in the Ku Klux Klan, etc., 
there's there's been movements of um, radicalizing elements and militias that have been gathering and recruiting people that are now gaining force and, and are amplifying their message a lot more. So this this is, I think, the one of the main elements why we see a, an avalanche in polarization. I'd, I'd add to that as well. I think what, what interested us was the trend that you can see already in, in the US and, and Europe of, of a growing urban-rural divide that, that mirrors very much um, this broader debate about the winners and losers of, of globalization, uh, the somewheres and, 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 and the anywheres, so people who relate to their local place and people who are perfectly happy to be wherever, earning a wage wherever, traveling around a lot, that increasingly political identities also overlap with, with this sort of territorial identity, whether you're urban elite or, or whether you're sitting in the countryside and you feel a bit left behind, and that equally people are assorting themselves politically by moving. So if you're living somewhere that you don't feel you can change the, the politics, then you physically move somewhere else. You don't believe anymore in the power of democratic change. So I think that that trend was was clear for us, you know, speaking now in 2020, that we can see this big sort of political divide mapping with a, a territorial divide between city and, and countryside. Yeah, and the election of Trump actually followed this urban-rural divide. So there's been a lot of uh, written about who voted for Trump, was it what kind of person votes for Trump, gender, education, etc. wise. But the biggest cleavage um, that is apparent, and that is also becoming apparent in many other divisive issues like Brexit is urban-rural. People in cities vote different than people in a rural area or people outside of a city. And it's also the first time in a long time, I guess, in the West that this identity overlaps with geography and has a political implication that people vote in a way that they live and that they feel. This is why a sort of civil war is is very likely because it's no longer... um, people hating each other, uh, living next to each other, but people hating each other with clear borders, with a city border as a front line, possibly. What you're saying is that we have basically two trends. The one is the increasing divide between, let's say, Democrats and Republicans, and we have the urban-rural divide. Are there any other divides that play into this? I think these increasingly overlap. Speaking as you know, somebody who follows British politics closely, you're beginning to see the, the political identities between left and right suddenly mapping together with urban and rural. So I think you'll see that in, in the US as well between Democrats who, who perhaps find a power base in city elites who, who tend to think in, in leftist ways and, and the Republicans who then appeal much more to the people who feel left behind, perhaps in the countryside, perhaps in post-industrial towns, etc., etc. So I think political lines will, will begin to to shift around that that bigger sort of cleavage. Natalie, you said earlier the Charlottesville demonstrations climbed out of a dark corner of the internet. That's your main area of expertise um, here with us. What's the role of the internet in, in this development? When we were discussing this scenario, uh, something that pops up often is, okay, but these kind of divides and economic recession and polarizing sentiment, they've happened already after the Cold War, they've happened uh, in the 90s, uh, early 2000s. What's different now? I think the internet makes everything so much more different um, because not only do you have a way to organize, as I said, you have sort of extremists finding each other online and being able to plan when they're going, where they're going, who's in charge, what to do. 
But you also have the role of the internet in this polarizing element. Um, and it is widely known by now that the platforms that exist, uh, the Facebooks and Twitters of the world, they have a highly polarizing effect. The way in which they've uh, catered to personal interests and that they've created filter bubbles and echo chambers, these little pockets on the internet that perfectly validate your worldview and everyone who agrees with that stays in your echo chamber and in your filter bubble. Um, it creates a polarizing moment that has a real life implication and a real life impact. And what Roderick also said about the fact that people move to cities or, or, or rural, that they move to the place that they feel more politically inclined, the internet has had a great role in that as well. Internet gives you the possibility to find a job in a city if you live in a rural area. Or uh, you might find like-minded people on the internet if you live in an area surrounded by not like-minded people. Uh, and this goes both ways. It has given the possibility to create bridges, but also given the possibility to polarize even more. The internet has, has really accelerated this whole process of polarization, organization and potentially conflict. I think the internet is just one example of the way that, that greater connections between people has, has in, in many ways driven them apart. You mentioned, Natalie, that people don't dislike each other because they're living close together, but because they dislike the idea of one another. That's something that's fueled by the internet. We see that about communities which have very low immigration rates are voting against immigration very heavily because they dislike the thought of it and they see the politics in the cities where there's a very progressive idea of migration and they and they're afraid of that that's through the internet that's not through physical contact that's that's through these sort of virtual connections and sort of on the flip side I think if you're sitting in cities you've lost the connection to, to the countryside even if you're in a relatively rural town precisely because connections supply lines etc have become so smooth and so abstract you have no sense of the connection between the city and and the countryside that may be providing the food that you consume so you have greater connections but actually a greater distance globally cities are, are managing to to position themselves as if they've sort of cracked the future and they're very progressive and they have a sharing economy and they have new ways of living together and different family patterns and if you're living in the countryside, it's entirely alien to you. So this very sort of triumphalist city politics is, is very alienating. Can we say that the rural-urban divide that we see is also a backlash? Is that like the countryside revolting against that urban claim to the future? You know, we live in an era where, you know, by 2030, the vast majority of the world will live in cities. So is this the revolt of the countryside against progressive urbanization and the domination of cities in the, in the world political order? I truly believe that. And I think this is something that we're seeing in, in almost any country. It's a tension between diversity and uniformity. And you see this represented in urban-rural. If a city is always in movement, it's always diverse, it's progressive, it's it's going somewhere uh, constantly, like collapsing, collecting uh, um, different perspectives and views, then um, villages and, and the rural sentiment is very much on like order and norms. And if you come here, you adapt. And this clash between this diversity and uniformity has traditionally brought us a lot of progress. It's, it's the Kantian thesis, antithesis brings synthesis. But if we go too far apart from each other, and if we let this, this clash between diversity and uniformity not devolve into a synthesis, and, and 
use the uniformity parts, eh? use the whole normative ideas of, of a, a rural village and, and uh, this is what our society is like, this is how um, we try to create order. If we don't use that part for the diversity, for the cities, for the progressiveness, it will devolve into conflict and it will also devolve into anarchy. Because we, if we allow this, this diversity idea to not have a sort of uniformity and, and rules and structures, it will also create a sort of disintegration of, of the fabric of our society. So it's, it's a bit of a philosophical argument almost, but it is a force that we're seeing now uh, that is actually having a very physical manifestation in an urban-rural cleavage. I wouldn't want to overdo the idea of a, of a clash between town and country. One of the things that, that I suggest in the report was, was that if the EU wants to get into city diplomacy, then there's an enormous space there for dealing with broader territorial problems, city crises, the fact that you do have people in cities who feel left behind or have a very strong attachment to place, the kind of things that you might expect from the countryside. If the EU gets away from the sort of triumphalism around cities that you hear in, you know, the big global cities, then there's there's a lot of space to be dealing with the problems that, that you see in other bits of the world where you, where you do perhaps have a great attention. For for us, I think one one of the themes when we were thinking about this was was how similar are the problems that you can see in the US with with those in Europe if this can happen in the US can it happen in Europe we have a different style of of urbanization we have a more local style of politics sometimes we have fewer arms floating around our territory which you know, might lower the, the threshold to to political violence in the US and where it doesn't here that that was another of the themes that that this scenario throws up and, and is worth addressing. Yeah, I was going to ask you actually, how likely is this to happen in Europe? For those of you who don't know, urbanization patterns in Europe differ in the sense that I think in Europe we have a fairly equally distributed network of cities with each city being not further, on average, 70 kilometers away from the next city. Uh, and I think in the US it's double that. So it's the distances are just you know between the cities And plus they have bigger cities, whereas we have more medium-sized cities. So we have more Munichs and they have more Chicagos in that sense. So you're both saying, are you both confident that while we might have similar patterns in terms of division, we don't have the structural issues that would facilitate it? Well, we were discussing uh, how the density in Europe would influence this type of urban-rural clash and conflict. Would it make it worse? because we're so close to one another that we can't physically actually stay apart and it might escalate violence? Or would this closeness mean that we can keep talking and, and not devolve into conflict? Um, so I, I believe in the second. Uh, I really do believe that uh, as a Belgian, I, I literally can go anywhere in the whole country within an hour by train. It is very possible for me to go visit my cousins and people on the countryside or, or people who don't live in a city. And yes, this also presumes uh, me coming from a city that I, I come from a, a specific uh, uh, point of view, but we're a lot more networked and interconnected, which means that it doesn't have to escalate into such violence. Uh, and then the second part, why it probably won't happen in Europe in the same way in the US, is what Roderick already mentioned. We don't have that many guns. The U.S. has more guns than there are people. This means that it's very easy to actually start grabbing guns and to escalate into violence. And I've seen this also online in some of these echo chambers. Also on the left, there's like a, a, a liberal uh, rifle association 
that is calling upon armament and that is also telling people like pick up your arms and telling black people like you should also get guns because if we push for disarmament we're going to be the ones on the losing end i want to add two things one is on the pattern of urbanization in in europe which could actually make the tensions here worse which is that in Europe, the tendency is for elites to live in the city centres and then to push poorer people out to the suburbs. You know, you'll see that in France or whatever, that, that wealthier people tend to live in, in the centre of Paris and, and then you have large housing blocks in, in the periphery. That's the opposite of the US where poorer people tend to live in the city centres and, and if you're a bit wealthier, then you live in the countryside. So here you, you have potentially more of a geographic division between town and country, you have the elites living in the centre and then and then the poor people in the countryside sort of seeking out in, into there. So I think that's, that's possibly cause for concern. And on the question of, of arms, a lot of people in the UK at the height of, of the Brexit talks were, were making the comparison between the political divisions in Britain and in, and in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, that the people were saying this, you know, this reminds me of, of how life was when, when we were in, in Yugoslavia and, and, and the British said, don't, you know, don't be so silly. Uh, you know, that, that can never happen here and look, it hasn't. But arms in the former Yugoslavia were more free-flowing. So again, the threshold to violence was much higher. So there's a certain degree, I think, of complacence in, in somewhere like the UK that we haven't had a history of violence, so you know there are not arms freely available. But how easily might we have tipped into 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 political violence in Western Europe if if arms had been more readily available? Um, and a last thought, which we were talking about before, again, Natalie, that the focus in Brussels when we think about arms being smuggled into Europe, particularly in the wake of the Paris attacks and so on, was very much you know, focused on, on the Balkans and, and whatever weapons they, they might still have there. But having talked to people in, in Brussels who, who deal with these issues, they all say people in the Balkans have no intention of, of selling their arms abroad. They're waiting for the next conflict at home and they're going to keep hold of their arms. So it is very possible that, that there is a kind of resurgence of, of violence, just perhaps not in, in the ways that we're looking at. I was going to say, I mean, this seems to assume that you need arms to conduct a civil war. Well, the, the prime example to counter this argument is normally uh, Rwanda, where it happened, the genocide happened with machetes. Uh, so we are ex assuming that our type of society today will not use machetes, but uh, I don't know, maybe something more sophisticated, like an assault rifle, but perhaps it's even something different altogether available in terms of weapons. I mean, I'm looking at you, Natalie, because maybe it's something virtual. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. I think cities are, are these microcosmos uh, that function very well until you cut off the power. There's a, a report, a blackout, that um, after five days, people will start dying if you cut off the power in, in cities because of the, first of all, the anarchy that devolves, but also just essential services uh, will stop working. So it's it's one of those things that indeed uh, using cyber attacks or, or just getting the, the power supplies and resources. Oh, I see Florence looking very afraid now. <laughs> <laughs> um, is is would be highly efficient, uh, and this would be um, less one on one machete fighting, but more you know us versus them, as I was saying. One question we haven't addressed yet is what is it that these two sides are actually fighting about in this scenario? What is it that they want from this? It's a difficult question because often in civil war. 
what is actually the end game uh, and it's mostly about dominance of the other group. I think in this scenario it would be about keeping political power. What are people mostly disgruntled about in the US? Uh, it's foreigners, it's mostly economic recession, it's uh, resources and yeah it's about getting jobs and, and having the, the control over um, resources basically. In this scenario you seem to hint at, well, you mentioned that uh, a hike in fuel prices or in gas prices agreed under the new green deal obviously put a button. So climate change in this scenario a new president brings the US back into the fight against climate change and that takes a burden or puts a burden on those that rely on fuel to cover long distances, i.e. the countryside. So climate change is also a dimension um, that's covered here, correct? This adds another friction point to, to these two camps. So the geographic divide, the ideological divide, and well, that includes climate change as an ideological matter in that sense. And which will trickle into a cultural divide, because what it all creates is identity. If you are uh, uh, caring about the climate and you don't use a car and you are a vegetarian and you try to be open for uh, immigrants, etc., it's an identity thing. So it's an overlap of a cultural divide with a political divide with a geographical divide. And it has all these aspects coming in that create these cleavages and make them even deeper. And the whole caring about climate change will cause certain policies that will cause certain conflicts. If I was going to be philosophical for a moment, go on. I think I think all geopolitics is is driven by a sense of resource competition, of uh, other people stealing your access to the things you need to survive. Uh, and on the one hand, the sort of realist approach is deeply based in the Malthusian fear that, that the global population is going to outstrip the available resources. And you look abroad and you see a population explosion in wherever it might be, Africa or Asia. And that then fuels a sort of nativist drive for survival that you say, okay, we, we do what we need as a nation to survive. And that might be the, the sort of politics that you then see in the countryside, that people are scared of global competition. And the other approach is, is the much more sort of liberal, technocratic, supposedly, you know, win-win approach where everybody wins by global development, which is itself rooted in social Darwinian thinking from, from again, from the early 20th century. And, and hiding underneath it is, is a fairly brutal survival of the fittest that you pretend to say, here is our sort of technocratic ec economic recipe where... The world cooperates, cooperates together and, and we resolve these tensions together, but actually the fittest survive. So I think, again, the, the urban-rural tension maybe plays into that, that you have the sort of elite liberal technocrats in the cities who, who unleash a sort of Darwinian competition and, and your Malthusians in the countryside who, who see that this is just adding to, to global tensions and these supposedly technocratic policies are, are putting them on, on the wrong side of, of this sort of global competition. And on top of that is, again, the internet, how disinformation also plays a really big part of this. If you see now how conspiracy theories on climate change have really reached a momentum in which political parties are even adopting them, denying how climate change is man-made. The internet has made it possible to spread these ideas and to, again, polarize based on it. Um, and then there's a part that we actually haven't discussed yet, is foreign interference in this as well. 
So we've seen this in the 2016 elections, how there have been uh, Russian influences on these online echo chambers, feeding disinformation, feeding uh, sentiments, feeding uh, an an uh, anti-Hillary and pro-Trump sentiments. This is something that is super effective as well. So we haven't really talked about foreign intervention in the whole urban-rural American civil war, but it's something that uh, we've kind of been shirking around because it's highly effective. One of the main things that, that make it different now from uh, the Cold War is then there was always the fear of like, oh, what if the Russians would be knocking on our door? Well, they already are in a very different way. It's a lot easier to get rid of uh, the US as a powerful actor if you make it implode from the inside. So a lot has been said about Russian interference in the elections in 2016, but you're saying that Russian or indeed other interference could actually um, play an igniting role in the civil war? There has been even proof that there's been Russian disinformation operations on vac- vaccination sentiment. Why? Because it creates chaos. It creates division in society and it makes, again, people divert, you know, um, split up in, in different identities. It ruins the fabric of society. And it's highly effective. It's again this tension between elites who are telling you what's what's good for you and your your common sense that says, mm, I'm not sure I, I trust this. And the internet giving everybody access to information that they can support their own claims. And we're all sufficiently educated to, to do precisely that. But we no longer discuss these claims. I have a question about this this revolution that is talked about in, in one of these, or, or actually in several of these echo chambers, uh, Natalie, that you spend your waking hours... Um hanging out with the wrong people in, in the name of research, of course. So you're saying that this is something that um, foreign actors, probably Russia, actively play a role in. Is this just about destruction, i.e. take the system down? Or is there also something that is proposed instead that would replace the current political system in the US? That was what actually my earlier question about what the two warring parties want from the civil war. I was wondering... Do they actually have something in mind? I'm, see, I'm guessing one side wants to protect the state of affairs as it is and the other wants to change it. But do they have an idea of what they want to achieve, what kind of system they want, or is it just destroy? The revolutionaries, I, I, I find it still hard to call them revolutionaries because right now they're not that organized yet to have a, an actual cause. But um, what we've seen in a lot of manifestos of these type of radicalized people is they, they speak of the great replacement So it's mainly driven on fear. There's really a fear that what they have will be taken away from them, that um, the identity that they have will be replaced. This angst of of white nationalism um, being wiped out, uh, the Kalergi plan uh, that foreigners are being let in so our identity gets uh, spread away and shattered and, and it's no longer possible to be a white, proud American in America. So it's, it's in my idea that the, the revolutionaries are, are driven by fear. What the geopolitical influence on, you know, causing this fear and causing this anarchy is, I feel a bit too myopic. Uh, and honestly, I, I don't even dare to say anything about it because we almost land into conspiracy theory field of like uh, the, the George Soros and, and, and um, deep state uh, theories of, of how the world is controlled by some master plan of, of uh, the great powerful uh, in the world. But weakening your enemy is always a good idea. And it makes uh, you able to make more moves. And we've seen this in, in many other proxy theaters in the rest of the world, how the US has become a very weak actor under Trump. 
the EU sees this as well. The way in which we are improving our defense capabilities and searching for alliances in the rest of the world because we see how the US is no longer a reliable and strong and competent ally. So it's it's honestly a brilliant strategy. We have brilliantly analyzed what the problem is, but <laughs> but how do we get out of this? What can we do to prevent such a scenario, whether in the US or, or in Europe? How much do we want to prevent this? I mean, if, if, we're, if we're heading towards a, a, a world of, of great power competition otherwise, then I'm afraid Europe is completely lost when it comes to dealing with, with you know, tensions between China and the US, and worst of all, having, having to choose sides. If you look at this from a European perspective, it's not a bad thing if, if continent-sized states start losing their internal cohesion and start having to reunify in the way that, that Europe is unifying. It makes, it makes us more of a normal power. I, d I don't mean that a, that a pure descent into, into chaos in the US is a good thing. Sounds like it. <laughs> but, but wouldn't that leave us exposed to Russia? Russia is mainly worried about China, which is chewing up its eastern border. Whenever Russia seems to be saying something about its fears about America... So substitute China in that, that's, that's where it's really worried. And I think we're, we're fairly irrelevant to that. If China also loses its, its internal cohesion, then, then that, that sort of evens things up nicely. So I'm not too worried about Russia. I mean, I don't know if I fully agree. I do agree in the fact that having a less strong America is good for the world. And in that sense, I've, I've always said, like, I don't think it's the worst thing that Trump is in power for a few years, just to reshuffle the board a bit. But yeah, civil war would be problematic for all of us because we have the same culture, we share the same internet, and we're seeing a lot of these movements in the US having a very similar copy in Europe. And one thing that I find very fascinating is how um, media hacking and attention hacking, as it's done in the US, is being done here as well. And let me give you an example of this because I can see you frown what the hell is, is media hacking. Um, But it's this whole idea of amplifying a very radical message, a very polarizing message that has been done in the US through Fox News. It's been done in the UK with the tabloids. It has less of a tradition in Europe, but is being done now through the social medias. And I'll give an example of what happened in Belgium a few weeks ago. A radical student group invited a very radical anti-feminist sexist man to some lecture in a university. 20 people present uploaded the video integrally on their Facebook and they knew it was going to piss off a lot of people, which is exactly why they did it. Got picked up by a feminist organization, got picked up by the media, and this stupid tiny lecture for 20 people was suddenly in the national news and had one of their representatives on one of our talk shows at the table. This is what we call attention hacking and media hacking. They would have never gotten in the media if they hadn't known how exactly to manipulate this outrage, this feeling of, of being offended and making sure that this message is amplified and making sure that we argue over this because this is how you recruit new people to your cause and you drive new divisions. And this is something that has been done in the US for years and we're starting to see it in Europe as well. Can I, can I just rewind since Natalie is now disagreed with what I was saying. <laughs> If you're dealing with scenarios, um, which, which, which is the trickier outcome for, for Europe? If you're, if you're dealing with 
growing tensions between two large countries, the US and China, increased warlike behaviour, as I say, the, the pressure to take sides, or the collapse of internal cohesion in both of these countries. I think that we would be more at home with two large hegemons losing power, and we would also have more tools to deal positively with that, having tried to build cohesion inside Europe between various states which don't have a history of peaceful coexistence. And most of our cooperation with China has been around precisely things like that. Pension portability, trying to get states to cooperate, uh, urban-rural relations. These are precisely the things that, that we engage in China with. We don't engage in the US with that because the US doesn't take lessons from us. But I think we are more more at home with that problem than we would be two large warring states and we're stuck in the middle. Are you talking about Russia? Is that the second... Uh... No, I'm talking about the US and China. You know, what we're all talking about at the moment, growing power politics, the US and China squaring mm-hmm. off together, and every other bit of the world feeling marginal and small, or this scenario where you're actually dealing with the two large states losing internal cohesion and, and descending into potentially into violence at home. Between those two ills, I think, I think it's, it's the second that, w- that we can deal with more constructively. Do you think China is disintegrating in the similar way that the US is? I know very little about China. When I've talked to American counterparts, and, I, and I've said this to you before, when I'm talking to people about, you know, people who deal with sort of risk and stability, one thing they do talk about is, is our scenario. Uh, what happens when, when, you know, as I said, what happens when President Trump says that he quite fancies the third term, thank you. Uh, you know, what, what does that trigger at home? So, you know, the descent into, into some kind of political violence in, in the US is possible. And, and the second thing is that, that they think China collapsing somehow is more likely than China going to war with the US because no country has managed a, a catch-up like, like China has, that degree of economic development, that kind of strain. And I, and I think that, you know, as ever from, from a distance, we don't, we don't necessarily see these, these internal tensions um, and you, you tend to, to overestimate the, the degree of clout that a, that a country has. So I don't know enough about the subject to be able to say, but it's, it's not unusual to think that, I don't think. I mean, I'm also not a China expert. What I know, though, in the way China governs its internet is that it has structurally avoided this type of online polarization in the way it has built its online platforms How? by not making it free. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're reaching dangerous conclusions in this podcast. Go on. So that's why I also don't want to say we need to make the internet less free, but we need to not let the internet create these bubbles, these echo chambers, these these um, parallel universes. And I'm not at all saying we need to go the China route in this. And I think this is where Europe um, is developing its thinking on how Europe wants to govern its internet. Do we want to go the US route where platforms have created a structure that is beneficial for getting money, but terrible for democracy and easily hackable. Um, and I speak of hacking in the sense of hacking minds in democracy. Or do we want to go to China route where you either fall in line or you go to prison? 
One last thing I, I still wanted to say about your idea of like uh, two major powers, uh, it's better for them to both collapse, implode. I don't think China agrees with that. No, no, no. But <laughs> <laughs> and neither does the US. <laughs> but also in the sense that um, when, uh, I forgot which one, but there was a, one of the radical shootings uh, that did the Great Replacement article. I think it was in New Zealand. China wrote an op-ed, which was very interesting, on how the West needs to deal with its white supremacy issue. And I thought it was very fascinating how, I don't want to say it's advice, <laughs> because it's almost like we don't have that issue, you need to deal with it. But it is a sort of like, let's make sure that there is a sort of stability in the world and in your internal state, because it also indeed will affect theirs and it will affect ours. It will affect global stability if we don't deal with these polarizing groups of people in, in countries. Natalie, what is there that we can learn from China or just from your trips into the dark side of the internet about the prevention of these echo chambers or taking down these echo chambers that could prevent you know, this type of escalation? I think we need to have a better idea of how the off online world influences the offline world. I'm not saying let's push for more control over the internet. Um, but let's be more mindful of the fact that this is all happening and that we need to keep talking to each other, that we need to drag people out of a sort of mind uh, chamber that has been influenced by the internet. Let's not go to China route in having full mind control, but we need some authority on the internet to open up these chambers and to expose people to different perspectives. And I think that will be a, a solution for us, uh, not saying you need to think like this, but creating critical thinkers um, that can live in a democracy again, that can work together again, that don't uh, go on a dividing line and, and feel like conflict is the only answer. I mean, it's probably not the right analogy, but um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Netflix uh, account of somebody else, but it's quite shocking how the, your Netflix differs from those of other people. I guess that's exactly that, because my Netflix is, of course, based on my viewing behavior um although it clearly hasn't understood what i actually like to watch um but when you see that of other people i guess it's the same for twitter when I mean, we all use twitter but none of us has the same feed so i don't know if you want to forcibly inject other points of view or other other suggestions into it is this something that can be solved with algorithms or i go into these deep corners of the internet because i literally need to see that there's another perspective than mine and i must say it's gotten hard It's gotten difficult to actually crawl out of it. Uh, and I'm feeling the echo chamber around me as well. And it is starting to bug me. The fact that I would normally, if I walk over the street, I'm exposed to a bunch of different people, but I'm not on the internet. I'm always exposed to the same thing because that's what the machine knows you're going to like. And that's how you buy things. That's how you consume. That's, uh, that's how you feed your dopamine receptors uh, by just always getting the same liking Liking, liking. But on the other hand, even in the real world, it's difficult to engage with people that are from a different background, different points of view. Because I, I just remember that when Marine Le Pen made it to the second round and I was sitting in the Paris metro and I thought, who are the 30% that voted for her? Because I don't know anybody. That's because nobody in my circle of friends uh, is a Front National voter. So... How do you get out of that, 
you know, real life echo chamber, I think is also the other question because where do we engage with people that aren't like us at the hairdressers in the taxi? And actually the internet, the internet would have been a solution for this as well. And it still is in many ways. Um, I'm, I, we're bashing on the internet so much right now, but I still love it. Um, and I still love the fact that I can actually go out of my echo chamber and find the most random type of groups of people. Um, but it's an active decision. And I know that it is an active decision in, in real life, um, but maybe we should stimulate that active decision a bit more. Okay, so that's a call to all of us to find somebody who's completely different from us and have a conversation. I think that's what's just happened, actually, between the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> right, on that note, um, I'm going to ask you, as I always do with my guests, to give, give a, you know, in the, in the sense of accountability, I don't know if you know the Good Judgment Project, which asks you um, to give a sticker or, or a probability percentage-wise, how likely do you think this scenario is to occur between today and the 31st of December, 2022. 58%. 58%, okay. I, I've treated this more as a theoretical exercise. <laughs> so um, 0%? So, no, I, I, give you, I give you 17%. 17%, okay. That's fine because um, this isn't about you know coming up with a very likely scenario, but as, in, uh, as every scenario, the purpose is to understand the different drivers and you know if this happened in your 17 percent we would definitely all have a very big problem i think even though the ripple effect could be interesting so on that note um thank you natalie thank you Roderick, for joining me on this trip to the future and thanks to you for listening to us tune in again for another what if scenario soon 